0: Welcome to SciSlug Soundwaves, the debut podcast of UC Santa Cruz's very own Scientific Slug. Scientific Slug is UCSC's only undergraduate science magazine, bridging science and art in one beautiful print publication. Today, however, marks the beginning of a new adventure. Join us on this very epic journey. Each podcast centers on a different topic, and this week's topic is on the global plastic epidemic. This podcast has no single host, as we have many people on our staff whose voices and words we'd like to showcase. This episode features Sam Ross, Maggie Choi, Emily May, and Giselle Wynn. We're going to start off today's podcast discussing the Ocean Cleanup Project, which was founded by Dutch inventor Boyan Slot in 2013 at the age of 18. The goal of said project is to develop a passive system that will help clean up the world's major garbage patches, starting with the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. It's estimated that the, with the project's success, they could remove roughly 50% of the Great Pacific Garbage Patch in about five years. Before we start discussing this project, though, I'd like to provide some information about this garbage patch. The Great Pacific Garbage Patch, also known as the Pacific Trash Vortex, is one of the largest of five major garbage patches across the globe. While this trash vortex is categorized as one large entity, it is actually comprised of two patches. The Western Garbage Patch, which is found near Japan, and the Eastern Garbage Patch, occupying space between Hawaii and California. These patches converge in an area known as the North Pacific Subtropical Convergence Zone, found a few hundred kilometers north of Hawaii. In this location, warm water from the South Pacific mixes with colder water from the Arctic. This zone acts as a sort of transport system transferring debris from one patch to the other. With all that said, the Pacific Trash Vortex is formed with the help of the North Pacific Subtropical Gyre. To give some context as to how this works, we should define what a gyre is. As defined by the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, which is also known as NOAA, a gyre is a large system of swirling ocean currents. If we're talking specifically about the North Pacific subtropical gyre, there are four currents spanning an area of about 20 million square kilometers. It's worth noting that the Great Pacific Garbage Patch is not actually a quote-unquote island of trash, as it's mostly made up of non-biodegradable microplastics, most of which are not visible by the naked eye. As a matter of fact, you can't even see a giant patch of garbage through the satellite imagery. The only real visual indicator of this trash vortex is the water color, which could be described as a murky stew mixed with some larger pieces of trash, such as fishing gear. However, it is believed that under the Pacific Trash Vortex, there is a massive trash deposit, almost like an underwater landfill. Now that we have the context of the situation, we can properly discuss the Ocean Cleanup Project. The backbone of this project is a massive floater that sits on the ocean's surface and collects trash floating as well as trash just under the surface. The floater is equipped with skirts and a cork line uh, designed to ensure that trash will neither float under or over the floater. This floater uses a passive system uh, mostly because it would be pretty wasteful in terms of energy to have an active system such as a motor or batteries or something um, and how this passive system works is that it relies on wind, waves, and the current to carry both the system and the plastic it traps. In addition to this, there is a sea anchor to prevent it from moving too quickly, and a flexible design in order to withstand storms. When there is a lot of trash built up, a boat will come and collect the waste. Some major concerns of the project would be long-term ecological damage, as well as potential damage to ships traveling nearby. Fortunately, they thought of this too. Extensive monitoring of the system shows that there is no massive interference or entanglement with marine life. In regards to ships, there are no major shipping routes near the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, but there are safety features planned for the floater, just in case. These include safeguards like lanterns, radar deflectors, GPS, and anti-collision beacons. Now it's time to pass the podcast over to Maggie, who will be discussing the American mentality on plastic use.
1: While the Ocean Cleanup Project plays a vital role in reducing humanity's plastic waste, the American mentality on plastic is still centered on disposability and convenience. We live in a plastic world very much like Barbie does. We frequently use plastics, but do we know what it's made of? Plastic is a solid mixture of petroleum, coal, and natural gas, subjected under high pressure, followed by cooling. It has widely useful applications. It provides insulation for charging cables, which would otherwise be exposed to environmental threats or electrical leakage. Spandex, nylon, and polyester provide stretchiness and flexibility in yoga pants, not to mention the sweat-wicking fabrics that dry fast. Plastics even play a role in surgeries that reroute blood around a blocked artery. It's such a reliable material that it's hard to imagine life without it, but it was non-existent before the 1900s. It was first synthesized from phenol and formaldehyde by Leo Hendrik Baekeland in 1907. It became popular with the advent of the modern lifestyle and the adoption of plastic bags by major grocery outlets. The modern lifestyle was characterized by convenience and cleanliness. Plastics played a large role in the design of household cleaning supplies and equipment, which have transformed household chores from a full-time job to a task on a checklist. If money wasn't an issue, then buying disposable tools was like exchanging money for time. Time used for household work could be converted into time for other activities, such as spending time with family or relaxing. Starting from the 1980s, large supermarket chains switched to plastic bags because they were convenient and more durable than paper bags. From a manufacturer's standpoint, producing bags from a cheap material was a financially smart move. Since the prices of petroleum have been decreasing, making plastic is cheaper than recycling them. The cost of recycling plastic goes towards paying workers for separating recyclable plastic from trash that belongs in the landfill. It is more profitable to produce plastic than recycle them. With the trend of increasing disposability, there has been a shift from reusing to disposing. This rests upon the assumption that someone would take care of plastic waste. In America, That used to be the case until China cut back on plastic trash imports starting in 2017. As a result, awareness in America that used to be the case until China cut back on plastic trash imports starting in 2017. As a result, awareness of plastic waste increased, but it is difficult to cut ties with plastic. We are forced into dependency because many things are made of plastic. For example, when you go grocery shopping, some items may be wrapped in plastic. You have the choice to buy it or leave it, but many of us will choose the former, especially if we need that item. In the news, we hear about the damaging consequences of plastics on wildlife and the uncertain future of our environment. This begs the question of how to minimize our plastic consumption. What can we do to discourage plastic use? How can we achieve the freedom to live a plastic-free lifestyle? These questions center around the assumption that plastic is the bad guy. A paradox arises when we look at the history of plastics. Its original purpose was to reduce our usage of paper bags, which posed a deforestation problem. The new alternative would last longer, more than a paper bag would. Yet America has developed a habit of getting rid of plastics. The majority of plastic bags end up in landfills, where it takes at least 500 to 1000 years to decompose. Because this is an extensive problem, there are many ways to approach it. We'll look at this from a laboratory point of view.
2: The ocean cleanup project is innovative but it's just one of many efforts working to eradicate the global plastic epidemic what is it about plastics that's so bad anyways how does all this relate to our personal lives dr rebecca Broslow, an organic chemist who has been teaching at ucsc for nearly 30 years definitely has more than just one word to say on plastic use in fact she gave a talk titled, More Than Just One Word on Plastics, at an event hosted by the American Chemical Society at Cessnan House in Aptos just last September. Dr. Braslau actually joined SciSlug SoundWaves for an interview to help us answer some of these questions. Dr. Braslau's research specifically focuses around finding a replacement for phthalate plasticizers, which are substances used to increase the flexibility, durability, transparency, and longevity of a variety of plastics. Phthalate plasticizers are primarily combined with polyvinyl chloride, or PVC. This chemical combination is commonly used in a number of consumer goods, including building materials, construction, piping, packaging, and in hospitals in things such as blood bags. At a molecular level, the monomer phthalates actually migrate out of the long plastic polymer chains that they're mixed with and make their way out into our environment and even into our bodies. Like literally, these plasticizers are even in our mac and cheese. When ingested, they can cause all sorts of problems by altering our hormonal levels, which in turn increases our susceptibility to all sorts of health problems. Dr. Braslau has been developing innovative plasticizers that mimic phthalate plasticizers. These mimics do not leach out the way the regular plasticizers do. We started our interview talking about how humans got to this point of plastic dependence.
3: It kind of started out as a replacement for um, things that, that only the rich could own and that the people who couldn't quite afford those, could start getting plastic versions of those. And it wasn't until the 60s that we really started having early 60s, late 50s disposable single-use items. And I think that's where our society has really uh, made a big mistake. And I'm not just talking about American society, I'm talking about current modern society in terms of disposable plastics for single-use items. and. You know, there is a convenience there, there's a sanitary aspect, there's uniformity. If you buy, um, you know, a a piece of medical tubing and you're a hospital, you know that this is going to be sanitary, you know that it will fit to your machine, you know you can sterilize it, Um, you know exactly what to expect from it. But at the same time, you use it once and toss it. And right now, we're really bad at recycling. And most of the plastics have a very, very long lifetime for decomposition, way beyond our lifetimes. And we're just behaving like we can throw it away, but there is no away. It's not realistic for us to let go of everything, but at the same time, we have to stop being such consumers because there's we're really bad. If we could recycle 99.9% of the plastics we use, that would be a different story, but we can't. And not only that, but we aren't. Mm -hmm. Even the things we can recycle, we're not recycling properly. So it's a huge problem.
2: Dr. Braslau had a lot to say about how we try to use recycling as a band-aid to feel better about our waste.
3: What we used to do is we would buy a lot of plastic goods from China and then those big ships would go back empty. So people started sending back our recycling to China and we thought they were recycling it all, but they were in fact cherry picking out of the our, the recycling that we were sending over. And this is paper, cardboard, glass, plastic, mostly plastic and cardboard because glass is so heavy. And they were cherry picking out of it what they could easily recycle and then kind of just leaving it out and it would get washed to sea. So that's a big contribution to the, the great Pacific gyre and all the other plastic mm-hmm. garbage patches that are floating around. And those eventually turn into microplastics, which are catastrophic for the food chain locally some of some of the places are not even accepting recycling anymore and then Mm -hmm. there's also a problem for example here at UCSC our uh, plastic recyclings and uh, materials in general were too dirty Mm -hmm. and so all those nice blue recycling bins that we have are all going into the trash oh wow right and that's been happening for a while and yet the university is saying we're so green and you know still putting these containers out and we are you know dutifully those of us who are dutiful about it putting our recyclings in those containers then they just go into the landfill because um, some sectors of campus particularly near the 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 eateries and the the dormitory you know food providers have done a really bad job I mean it's it's multiple places across campus Mm -hmm. but there's some parts of campus that have been really bad about not putting clean recyclables into their Mm -hmm. recycling. And the truth is that there's just less and less recycling facilities, and now we're playing catch up in terms of trying to build newer recycling centers.
2: We are making some progress with developing new recycling facilities. Dr. Braslau informed me about some innovative ways to recycle styrofoam, which has been one of our most problematic plastics ever developed.
3: I took my research group to see the um, recycling center up in San Francisco for the city of San Francisco and they actually recycle styrofoam but they don't um, they don't revert it back to its monomer but what they do is they sell it to a place or I don't know if they sell it or donate it but they they grind it up and reformulate it into like moldings that would go over doors and things like that mm-hmm. and there's a place down in Santa Barbara that takes our polystyrene our poly, yeah the polystyrene and grinds it up and makes surfboards out of it but those are small that's not enough for society to really address society. So, um, And then there's all these other um, plastics that are, some of them are very recyclable like polyethylene, polyterthalate, and some of them are really not very well recycled like PVC um, and some of the quote others with the recycling codes.
2: I asked Dr. Broslow why plastics are bad for humans in the environment.
3: Not only because they're eaten instead of protein-rich food, but also because they have an a organic-y plastic surface. And so contaminants like uh, everything from pharmaceuticals that pass through our bodies and then get flushed out into the sewer systems or um, and oil and things like that glomp onto the surface of plastics because they're not particularly water-soluble in most cases. And then each time a crit- critter eats microplastic or a macroplastic. Both cases they're also getting a dose of all the contaminants that we're throwing into the oceans that are not water soluble. Well, and There's, there's two follow-up. different types. There's one of them is the way that polymers are made is you take these little tiny molecules called monomers and you chemically stitch them all together into a long chain like beads on a necklace and when you do that sometimes there's leftover monomer and some of those are very toxic like for PVC vinyl chloride is very toxic Um, For polycarbonates, uh, BPA is one of the monomers, and if it doesn't all get consumed, which it doesn't always, that's the BPA that is so toxic that people are worried about. So that's the leftover monomer when it's being polymerized and turned into the plastic. And then the other thing is that most plastics have what is called an additive package. And it's all sorts of things that vary from like sunscreen to help them not break down in the sun to plasticizers to prevent things from becoming brittle and rigid to colors to all sorts of other things that help in the uh, formulation process to be heat extruded into bottles of certain shapes and all that. And all of those things are just mixed in. And they can leach out, and in particular, what my research group's focusing on is phthalate plasticizers in polyvinyl chloride, or PVC. And those are um, small molecules that are being made on the multi-million-ton scale per year, and they're not—they're just mixed in with the the uh, polyvinyl chloride PVC um, polymer chains, and then with time, they leach out of the plastic and. They, the plastic gets ruined, but then if we or other mammals ingest it, we actually do a chemical reaction that changes it a little bit, and that looks like an endocrine signaling molecule.
2: Endocrine signaling molecules are hormones that regulate cell activity.
3: And the repercussions of that are um, many fold, but uh, particularly toxic to um, infant boys in utero at a certain period of the gestation period towards the end. And also right after they're born, um, they can um, become non-fertile adults by large exposure to phthalates at that critical time in their um, development. It's also been implicated in diabetes, it's been implicated in um, obesity and cancer, and now it's looking like it's also implicated in Alzheimer's. Wow. So these phthalates, 100, you know, million tons per year, they're all going into the environment eventually. And so that's what we're working on now is to try to develop things that could take their place that are one, not shaped like a phthalate so that they won't become endocrine disruptors and two, that they're physically attached to the polymer so they won't leach out. And um, we want them to be environmentally benign as well.
2: Her research began with the development of triazole-bearing esters and shifted to just long ether chains being used as phthalate plasticizer replacements. Here, she explains a bit more about the chemistry behind her research.
3: The first generation which we've published multiple papers on and really work are things called triazoles with two what's called ortho, which means next door, esters that look a lot like a, a benzene group an analogy to the triazole group with two esters next door to each other. So they're shaped chemically very similarly. So we thought, okay, well, if we wanna get rid of phthalates, let's make something that looks like phthalate, but we can physically attach in an economic fashion so that industry could actually uh, you know, incorporate this into their uh, manufacturing processes. And it worked, but what we found out is that, um, my sister looked at these molecules, and having taken organic chemistry once in her life, and it was a really bad, <laughs> bad nightmare in her memory, she forgot it all, and she said, these things look like frogs. And so we started making frogs with really long legs made out of what are called polyethers, and those were the best of all of our phthalate mimics. And then we realized that we could do it with just one leg. We call those um, um, uh, tadpoles. Hmm. And the, instead of a leg, it's a tail, so to speak, and just in terms of our analogy. And having one really long polyether tail seems to work just as well, and it still is attached to the PVC. And now we're giving up on the triazoles completely and just attaching those long legs to PVC by a variety of different methods. And those seem to be um, plasticizing. And the word plasticizing means that they become more flexible and moldable at lower temperatures rather than brittle and rigid.
2: Mm-hmm. So it's just the method of attachment that allows them not to leach out, whereas Yes, yes. we're chemically putting
3: are... a bond between whatever plasticizer we're using, whether it's the phthalate mimic or just a long chain of polyethers, and the PVC backbone, so that they're physically attached and can't just leach out because they're they're actually bonded together.
2: We have to consider the economic aspects when developing solutions to plastic use. Large-scale manufacturing is not Dr. Braslow's goal with these tadpole plasticizers. Here's her thoughts on the financial issues holding these projects back and how we can combat the big business blockades in our capitalistic society.
3: The plastics or the PVC industry in particular, which we're targeting, um, is is absolutely huge, and so they've got these giant refineries, and it's like trying to get a large ship like the Queen Mary to turn. Okay. They've already got all their supply lines established. They've got all their protocols for safety, and where they're you know where they're buying their things from, and how they're converting whatever their raw materials are into the plasticizers and the piping going in to mix it with the PVC uh, that they've already made. And getting them to retool and re figure out supply routes and things like that is very costly mm-hmm. and takes a long time. So industry's been they know they have to get rid of phthalates because they the governments of the US and in Europe and now in Japan are starting to make certain phthalates illegal to use in in commodity plastics. We haven't quite done that. Mostly for childcare articles, but we're moving in that direction. But I spoke to a high-level guy who had contacted me last Christmas, um, interested in our technology, and he said honestly, until we're, until they make it illegal, we're just going to keep using larger and larger molecular weight phthalates rather than change the technology because it just costs too much. We're hoping that we can do enough on the tiny scale here in Santa Cruz that uh, would make industry be really um, willing to change their formulations over time and adopt these, uh, uh, I would say, greener methods. And the other thing, too, is that it's great PR for them to say that we have gotten rid of phthalates, uh, you know, for their customers and things like that. And I think eventually the legislation's going to force them to do it anyways.
2: Dr. Broslau doesn't believe a plastic-free world will ever be feasible, but she does believe we can get better at our plastic use. Here's what she had to say when I asked if she thought humans could ever become
3: independent of plastics. I don't think plastics themselves, but there's some really exciting plastics that are now being developed, which are, um, there's two different things you need to worry about. One is that they're um, biosourced so that they can come from, uh, essentially from photosynthesis and and from Plants you want your source to not be a food source is what i 'm saying mm-hmm. uh, but from plant based which is eventually photosynthesis they 're using the sun rather than buried petrochemicals that are mm-hmm. decayed um, you know plant and animal manner from a long time ago, but we have that 's a very limited resource, and it 's contributing to global warming, so we want to get away from that so biosource polymers that 's one part of the story, and then the other story, part is to either make plastics that are truly, easily recyclable or that truly biodegrade. And the ones that are truly recyclable could be very precious if we treat them as such and keep recycling them. And the ones that would degrade would not be like the polylactic acid things that now say compostable all over them, but Mm -hmm. if you put them in your home composter, nothing happens. Mm -hmm. And essentially the current compostable uh, polymers need an industrial composter with the right mix of temperature, water, air exposure to get them to actually break down in a short period of time and the rest we're just feeling good about thinking (laughs) that we're using compostable stuff but in fact those things are you know plastic uh, forks and knives and spoons that say compostable that are made out of potato and things like that. Mm-hmm. Most of it, it just makes us feel good because most of it goes into the trash and once it gets buried underground, it doesn't get a lot of water exposure, it doesn't get a lot of air exposure, and they're sitting there for hundreds, hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. So there's some new polymers coming on the scene called polyhydroxyalkenates. Polyhydroxy, they're mm-hmm. sort of related to uh, polylactic acid in chemical structure and they can actually tweak the structures of these things to give uh, half lives of, of decomposition in normal circumstances that are viable to actually have them decompose.
2: If you haven't yet been convinced to make some of these lifestyle changes, here's a clip about why Dr. Brazo thinks we should care about all this.
3: we got to do something quickly because they're calling this the Plasticine Age and they're saying that if humans survive long enough or maybe it'll be some other creature doing excavations, they'll come to a certain point and like around 19... 19- Fifties and sixties, they're gonna hit a
2: layer, of, a
3: layer of plastics yeah. that wasn't there before, and it's, it's gonna be there for millennia.
2: Wow, yeah, that's really cool to think about. But it's cool, but scary. it's also <laughs> scary that we're
3: making such a different footprint, and you know, you can yeah. tell that the, the weather's going crazy and we're running out of certain resources and we're just going running along saying well if it saves me 5 minutes i'm going to go grab it <laughs> yeah it's not worth the the cost <laughs> the long term cost yeah. we're not paying it yet we're yeah. starting to with you know these big storms that are coming and things like that but it's not an immediate i mean human psychology is more based on immediate gratification and mm-hmm. immediate uh, feedback.
2: Yeah, I work with little kids, so I always think about them. I'm like, what? Like, what are this they This the world see? that I'm
3: being left with. Like, what mm-hmm. are they going to see? Yeah, this and they can see <laughs> some wonderful things because of science, and they're going to also have a lot of problems.
2: You might be wondering, what can I even do? I'm just one drop in a sea of plastic users. How can I possibly alter society so dependent on plastics? Don't be discouraged. We all have to take tiny steps, and Dr. Broslow agrees. It's these tiny steps that together can make a big change. Here's a clip of our interview discussing some of the small sacrifices we can make to help the movement.
3: And we just have to stop using so much single-use plastic. Mm -hmm. That's, it's, it's, we're jeopardizing the future of the next generations. Every time we drink water from a bottle and then it takes us two minutes or 20 minutes and then we hopefully recycle it, that's Mm -hmm. not a good use of plastics. So we have to make different choices, and what is particularly challenging right now are these multi-film plastics that have like a foil liner on the inside, and then they have plastic, and then maybe another plastic. One's preventing oxygen penetration, one's preventing sunlight from coming in and those are really hard to recycle. You can't take the plastics apart. From, no. And yeah. they they some people have developed a machine somewhere but it's not available here. So I'm collecting all mine and my husband thinks I'm turning into one of those people <laughs> who, you know, <laughs> yeah. like won't let throw anything away, but I'm just hoping that someday I can find some place where I can recycle that stuff rather than having it all go into the landfill. And yeah. I try not to buy that stuff, but sometimes you buy it not even knowing it's there.
2: We continued this discussion on our different plastic choices for a minute. At one point, I admitted my shameful use of my household communal Keurig.
3: Why do you even need pods? Why not just go to coffee beans? <laughs> I mean, that, that's one of my biggest gripes. When I go to Costco and I'm looking at all of those little teeny pot, plastic pods, and for each cup of coffee you have, you're generating a plastic little thing. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. such a convenience thing, but it's still, I mean, how hard is it to get coffee beans grind them and, and make a cup of coffee. It tastes it's, better that way, too, so I don't know Probably. <laughs> uh, but yeah. it's a convenience thing, and right now people are willing to trade convenience for environmental footprint, and it's hard. I mean, it you know, even things like toothpaste. Yeah. You know, it's we're so used to just convenience and throw mm-hmm. it away.
2: They have? toothpaste now that that is, like, in capsules. Little pellets, yeah, yes. My pellets. sister uses that. Yeah, yeah, I've been thinking about that, too. So there's yeah. little choices. And they're mm-hmm. hard to make. I know that, like, when we recycle, like, occasionally I'll be like, oh, I don't want to rinse it out, but I need to rinse it out. And yeah. I'll have this dilemma where I'm like, I just want I rinse to it. I'm just over just to the sink it. and do it. <laughs> and I even
3: pull stuff out of the recycling that my husband doesn't quite rinse well enough. And <laughs> I rinse it all, just <laughs> out. But then, you know, we also have drought yeah. and water restrictions. And so you got... You know, what I'll do is, like, you know, throw the the used wash water into that and let it mm-hmm. sit rather than, you know, just turn on the tap and yeah. rinse it. it's sit yeah. All of it is, is a balancing act, you know, mm-hmm. in our modern society. And then there's things like, you know, if you ski or snowboard, that's all plastics, and they're fantastic, and they've improved so much over the last 40 years compared to what they used to be, or even ski boots, and they're all plastic. So we're not going to let go of plastics anytime yeah. soon. We're not going to walk around with a goat bladder instead of a water bottle. It would not be very sanitary and, um, you know, it's just we're not going there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we yeah. have to make much better choices than we are now.
2: I asked Dr. Broslow if she had any last words for RSI Slug listeners. And here's what she had to say.
3: The one thing that I would really love to say is that people should not be chemophobic because our bodies are made of chemicals. Everything that's natural is made of chemicals. And um, some of the most toxic chemicals in the world are natural. Mm-hmm. Um, so chemicals themselves are just part of life. Mm-hmm. And synthetic chemicals can be completely identical to some of the natural ones. And then some of the synthetic chemicals can be even better, like if you have a terrible disease and... and um, Pharmaceutical industry can cure you, which you might have died, you know, if it had been 60 years ago. You know, there, there's, I am a chemistry professor, and I treat a lot of chemicals as t- toxins and dangerous. But to just have a knee-jerk reaction against chemicals is, uh, this shows your ignorance. And so I got in a altercation with a woman who was selling natural candles, and she kept telling me her candles were chemical-free, <laughs> and I said, well, what is the wax made out of? And she didn't want to hear this discussion. You know, She was like, no, mine are chemical-free. And I said, well, it's either music, thought, or va- deep space vacuum if it's chemical-free. You know, if your yeah. cat- candles are made out of chemicals, yeah. you can't call it chemical-free. But to just not have this knee-jerk reaction against chemicals per se, because that's what we're made of, and that's what the world around us that is uh, tangible solids, liquids, and gases are made out of. But there are definitely some very toxic chemicals and some chemicals that shouldn't be out and about. And then there's some that are really helpful. So yeah. that is kind of my, my last uh, uh, point that I want to make in the interview.
2: Dr. Broslau has ongoing research and has recently sent out a proposal regarding her ether phthalate mimics. If you're interested in learning more about her research, you can find information at broslau.chemistry.ucse.edu.
4: Volunteering at events like beach cleanups and donate to organizations are all good actions to take in your workplace, school, and community you can step up and speak out to help limit plastic usage. Educating and spreading the word to family and friends can also help bring more people into the sustainability game. In your personal life, buying sustainable products and thinking about plastic packaging when getting groceries is a great first step. Additionally, bringing your own reusable bags to the grocery store, thrifting whenever possible, and looking for long-term, over-disposable products all are small pushes in the right direction. Living in a Barbie world, we know that life in plastic isn't fantastic. Your power as constituents as community members and consumers has a big effect on plastic pollution. While plastics are a huge long-term issue, together we can make a difference. This has been Giselle Went, Sam Ross, Maggie Choi, and Emily May speaking for SciSelect Soundwaves. Thank you for listening, and be sure to tune in for our next podcast.